Lord's Day and every Lord's Day. So whether we're having a good week, whether we had a good week or a really rough and difficult week and we're coming in weary with almost no spiritual strength at all or maybe no strength at all, praise God that Christ rose from the dead and he has come to give us that resurrection power and strength and refresh that in us this morning. My name is PJ. I'm one of the four pastors here at Bethany Baptist Church, and it's a joy to think about God's word with you today and to um, gather in worshiping the Lord Jesus. So, because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please take your Bible and open it to the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians, we're beginning a new series here in Colossians, and we're going to be looking at the first eight verses we're going to touch on verses 1 and 2, but not go too deeply in there. We might pick that back up in an overview sermon at the very end of the letter. But Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. If you don't have a, your own Bible, there's a pew Bible in the chair in front of you. It's a hardcover. You could grab that and turn to page. Anyone have the page? What page is that, Jeremiah? 1043. So turn page 1043 there in Colossians 1. Thank you. And you can follow along. Again, the big numbers are the chapter numbers and the small numbers are the verse numbers if it's your first time, first day now looking at the Bible. Hear God's word from Colossians chapter 1 beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Timothy our brother, to the saints in Christ at Colossae, who are faithful brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the, of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You have already heard about this hope in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. It is bearing fruit and growing all over the world, just as it has among you since the day you heard it and came to truly appreciate God's grace. You learned this from Epaphras, our dearly loved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has told us about your love in the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Father, that is our prayer, that your word would dwell richly among us. When, you first, when people first heard the word with faith, Lord, they trusted in you and appreciated grace. And we pray that we would have that same grace and effect this morning, same response this morning. That as we hear your word and hear the word of your grace, that we would respond with faith, repentance, and appreciation of your grace to us. We are so undeserving. Father, we confess now that we can do nothing apart from you and your Son and Spirit, and so we ask for your help. May we abide in Christ and his words abide in us, and may his Spirit empower us so that we may bear much fruit by hearing your word and heeding your word and meditating on your word and then obeying your word. Father, we pray specifically that you'd protect us from the evil one with all of the children here and the potential for distraction. We pray that it would not lead to uh, discontentment, complaining, or impatience, but that by your Spirit's power, we would have great patience. The parents would have great patience with their children, that those around would have great patience and love and support for the children, and that you would open up the hearts of the children to you even this morning. Lord, only you can do that. So change us. Make us more grateful than we could ever be apart from you answering this prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the Lord Jesus has a word for you today. He has a word for me. He has a word for us as a church family. He brings it and uh, will be bringing it to us for the next several months from the book of Colossians through one of his apostles. Here it says in verse 1, the apostle Paul. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by God's will, and Timothy, our brother. So here we have a message from the Lord Jesus coming through the, through the apostle Paul primarily, but also through Timothy, his brother. Because... Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ by God's will. He comes with the very authority of Christ. 
So his words, these words of the book of Colossians have the authority of Christ himself. And, and we know that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to the Lord Jesus. So that, all, all that limitless authority is now coming down on us this morning through the book of Colossians, through the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul and Timothy originally wrote this letter to, it says here in verse 2, to whom? To the saints in Christ, where? At Colossae, okay, who are faithful brothers and sisters. So, Paul wrote this letter originally to the saints at Colossae. Colossae is a city where Paul never went to plant a church as far as we know. It's a, it's a few miles, um, several miles from the city of Ephesus. So, probably Paul uh, preached and planted a church in Ephesus, one of the converts there who we're going to meet in verse 7 was probably converted there and, and went to this valley, Lycus Valley, and he actually planted three churches in that area in three, in three different cities, and Colossae being one of those three cities. And so this servant who planted this church here in Colossae went back to Paul while Paul's in prison, probably in Rome, where he wrote his other prison letters like Ephesians and Philippians, uh, where, where Paul wrote these letters uh, in prison. This brother who planted the church, his name is Epaphras, we learn that in verse 7, came back to Paul and was sharing how the church is doing. Hey, give me an update on the churches. Well, here's what's going on at the church in Colossae. So he gives an update to Paul, a lot of blessings, but also some concerns. And Paul was so moved by the concerns of the church at Colossae that not only did he, did he um, continue to pray for them, but he was so moved that he wrote a letter to deal with his concern about them potentially leaving Jesus Christ as the center of their thinking and their living. Maybe not trying to leave Jesus intentionally, but adding a little bit to Jesus in the center of their lives, which functionally would push Jesus out of the center of their lives. And so Paul writes this letter to the Colossians to keep Christ alone as central to their lives and their thinking and their living. And so he writes this letter. And so Paul writes, it says in verse 2, to the saints in Christ at Colossae. Now he calls them saints. Now I, I was uh, from a Roman Catholic background. My family was Roman Catholic before we converted and heard the gospel and believed in Christ. And so in Roman Catholicism, saints are only those who are deemed and, and declared saints by the church. And, and it's always, or almost always, after they die, they're declared saints. That's not the practice of the Apostle Paul here in this letter. Paul calls Christians saints. They're still alive. They're still sinners. They still mess up. But he calls them saints, and that means a holy one, someone who's set apart from sin for Jesus Christ and for his purposes, and they are saints in Christ because you're not a saint by yourself. You're only a saint by union with, union in, Jesus Christ. By you joining yourself to Christ and existing in the very person of Christ or in the sphere of who Jesus is, living in Jesus, are you a saint? And so there are saints, these are converts, these are Christians in Colossae. I wonder if you think of yourself as a saint. As you look around at fellow Christians here, that if you think about them as saints, that would be a, a fitting, biblical, and helpful way of thinking about fellow Christians as those who are holy ones, saints in Christ Jesus. Not only are they saints in verse, in verse 2, they are faithful brothers and sisters. They're brothers and sisters because God has become their father. He's adopted them in Christ. And when God is your father, and if God is our father, then we are brothers and sisters. We are the family of God in Christ. Paul has never met them, but he's heard about them, and he calls them saints. He calls them brothers and sisters, and he calls them faithful brothers and sisters, because they are faithfully, consistently holding on to Jesus Christ and following Jesus Christ in the midst of trials and temptations and, yes, sins in their lives. So that's, that's who Paul's writing to. And notice he gives here in verse 2 the greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father. That's just another way of typically saying hi, uh, grace to you. But Paul takes this, um, this um, opportunity to, to take a, a normal greeting, but then he Christianizes it or gospelizes it. He applies the gospel to the greeting and says, every time I greet people, I am going to greet people with a gospel-saturated greeting. I'm not just going to say, hi, have a good day, or God bless in a, in a thoughtless way. I'm going to say, no, may God's blessing come to you. May God's grace and favor come to you even as I greet you and as I address you. And may God's peace come to you through my greeting and through my, through my writing, through my correspondence. 
And so Paul expects a fresh new experience and an, an increase of God's grace in the lives of his hearers and readers as they read the letter. So that's Paul's typical uh, opening. And then in verses 3 through 8, which is what we're going to focus on for the rest of our time here, in verses 3 through 8, Paul opens with his typical statement of gratitude for the church at Colossae. Thanksgiving statements like these guide us, guide the reader, to be both encouraged by the gratitude and to be grateful ourselves. And I think that's the main point of this section for us this morning, to be encouraged and grateful. That would be the main application, to be encouraged and grateful. According to Harvard Health, they write in an article this year or last year, in po quote, in positive psychology research, gratitude is strongly and consistently associated with greater happiness. Gratitude helps people feel free, feel more positive emotions, relish good experiences, improve their health, health deal with adversity, and build strong relationships. In other words, gratitude is good for you. That's their finding. In their research, two psychologists, Dr. Robert Emmons of the University of California, um, Davis, and Dr. McCullough of the University of Miami have done much, of, much research on gratitude. In one study, they asked all the participants, they had three groups of people, um, and they, they had one group say, hey, a few everyone's gonna write a few sentences every week. One group, you're gonna focus on writing only things you're grateful for. The second group, write only on things that you are irritated by that day and things that displeased you and bugged you. And for the third group, write whatever you want. And so after a while of this study, so they had these people write this, after 10 weeks, those who wrote about gratitude were more optimistic and felt better about their lives. Surprisingly, they also exercised more and had fewer visits to the doctors, to physicians, than those who focused on sources of aggravation. Gratitude can be helpful. Now, we don't need a study like this to tell us that. We shouldn't be surprised that gratitude makes you happier and healthier in life under normal circumstances. We, we know that because God commands us to be grateful, right? He says in, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 18, in everything, give thanks. Give thanks in everything. Give thanks always. Give thanks regularly because God is good. God doesn't give us arbitrary commands to give thanks. He gives us commands because the commands are good for us. They're not burdensome. And so as creatures in his world under his order and nature and design, of course gratitude is good for us. Of course giving thanks to God for his goodness is good for us. So let's think about giving thanks and being grateful for others. I want you to now to think of someone in your mind, a fellow Christian that you are thankful for. Get their name in your mind. Get their face in your mind. See them smiling at you. See them in your mind? Got them? Okay, great. Now, I want you to think about them, and I want you to think of one reason, one or two reasons, why you're thankful for them. Why are you thankful for those Christians you said you're thankful for or you thought to be thankful for? All right, let me hear a few of you, two or three or four of you. Just say the reason you're thankful for them, not who they were, but why you're thankful for them. Because they put up with you. Good. What else? They gospelize, they gospelize you. Because they're accessible. They're accessible. One more. They like K-pop. Like okay. So those are four reasons here that you heard about why people might be grateful and thank God for others around them. And so this is the main goal. We want you to be encouraged and grateful to the Father when thinking about others and when praying for others. Be encouraged and grateful to the Father when praying for one another. Now, you guys gave four reasons. Here are Paul's two reasons. And no, K-pop is not on the list. <laughs> Here it is, two reasons. Be grateful, number one, for what the gospel people are doing, and number two, for what the gospel itself is doing, okay? Number one, so be grateful for people. Be grateful to God when you're praying for others. Be encouraged and grateful when praying for them because of what the gospel people are doing. And secondly, what the gospel itself is doing. Verses 3 through 5, what are gospel people doing? Think about what they're doing and then be grateful for that. Secondly, think about the gospel and what the gospel itself is doing. And these are really two angles at the same thing. What the gospel people are doing is what the gospel is doing in them. 
And what the gospel people are doing is, is them moving the gospel out to do it in more people. So it's really two angles on the same thing. But Paul gives us these two angles to, to help us um, flesh out and feed or fuel the fire of gratitude in our lives. All right? So let's think about these two. So we want to be encouraged and grateful to the Father when praying. Point number one, be encouraged and grateful for what gospel people are doing. And this is it. Um, be grateful, be encouraged and grateful for our faith and our love. Be grateful for faith and love. That's the first one. What are gospel people doing? They are living with faith in Christ. And they are loving all the saints. Look at verse 3 and 4 and 5 here, or verses 3 and 4. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Why? Verse 4. For what? What is he thankful for? For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. That's one. Your faith in Christ Jesus and two, the love you have for all the saints. That's what gospel people are doing. They are believing in Jesus. They're continuing to believe in Jesus and they're continuing to love all the saints. So let's think about those two. Our faith in Christ Jesus, our love for the saints. First of all, our faith in Christ Jesus. Faith is belief, right? So they are believing in Christ Jesus. Who is Jesus Christ? Who is this Jesus that they're believing? Look at Colossians 1, 15 through 20. This is not a thorough exposition of 15 through 20. We'll get this in a few weeks. But let me read it to you. Who is Jesus? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is, the he he is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So who is Jesus? To summarize this passage, he is God. He's the perfect and complete image of God. He is preeminent over all creation. He is the creator. He is the sphere in which everything exists. He is the goal. He is the priority. He is the sustainer of all things. He is the head of the church. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is first place in the new creation. He is fully God. He is the reconciler, reconciling sinners to, to God. And he is the peacemaker. Indeed, he is our peace. That's Jesus Christ. And this group of saints believe in this Jesus Christ. They trust in him. What are they trusting him for? They're trusting him for their salvation. Uh, Calvin alluded to, er, to, alluded to it earlier, but Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth, um, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, verse 13 of Romans 10, uh, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So they're trusting in Jesus as Lord, as Lord over all. They're trusting in Jesus as Savior, that he will save them from their sins. They're trusting that Jesus died for their sins and rose from the dead. So they're trusting him for salvation. They're trusting his lordship. Indeed, they're even trusting him for their satisfaction and fulfillment. Do you remember John 6.35? This is one of my favorite verses, so I quote this often here in this church, where Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who believes in me will never hunger, and he who comes to me will never thirst. In other words, Jesus fulfills your hunger. He fulfills your thirst. Do you believe that? I mean, those who come to Jesus for that fulfillment. In his presence is abundant joy, and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore, eternal pleasures in Jesus. So they trust him for fulfillment and satisfaction. If you're not a Christian, this is the main message of Christianity. This is what our whole lives are about. Our lives are about Jesus. So if you're not a Christian and you don't listen to anything else in this message, listen to this. God made you to know him and enjoy him. You are his creature and you are accountable to him. Yet we have, you, ha you and I have rebelled against God. We have rebelled against our creator and sought to use him as our butler rather than as our destination and our treasure and our king. And because we have not valued God, but sought to utilize God and use God for our own means or just ignore God and just dismiss him altogether, 
We deserve judgment and sin. The wages of sin is death. The outcome of sin is death, eternal death. But here's the good news. God sent his son Jesus, and I just told you who he was, the creator, God the son becoming a man. Jesus Christ lived the life we should have lived on this earth, never sinning, trusting God, died on the cross for our sins and took the judgment that you deserve and rose from the dead so that if you would repent from your sins and trust in this Jesus this morning, you will be saved. You'll be cleansed of your sins. You'll be forgiven of all your sins, past, present, and future. He'll give you his Holy Spirit to live in you, to empower you, to walk with him for the rest of your life until he returns and brings us all into the new earth, the new kingdom to come. That's an open invitation to you here if you're not a Christian. You're invited to become a Christian. You're invited to repent from your sins and trust. You're not only invited, you're instructed and called on, commanded from God to repent from your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this faith here, going back to Colossians chapter 1, verse 4, we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. This faith is not just trusting Jesus as your Savior and Lord. It's really faith in, this is a different word in than other parts, like in Colossians, I think, 2, 5, where it says faith in Jesus, meaning that you're trusting in who Jesus is. When it says faith in Jesus here, it means that you're living your life of faith in the sphere of Jesus, can I give you that weird concept? That, that, that these saints are living their lives in the sphere of Jesus. What does that mean? We learned in Colossians 1.17 that all things hold together. It says by him in the, in the CSB. But you could translate with that same word in. That, we, we, that all things are sustained or all, all things hold together in Jesus. All things are in Jesus. You can almost think spatially in a sense. In a sense. That, that everything is in the sphere of Jesus. Even in Colossians 1.28, Paul works for the maturity of Christians, their maturity in Christ. What does it mean to be mature in Christ? That you would be growing in your maturity in the person, in the sphere you exist in Jesus. If that's too weird, I have one more Bible verse and then an illustration here. One more Bible verse. In Acts 17.28, when Paul's preaching, he says about God, in him we live and move and have our being. So our very existence is in God. That's talking about all people, Christians and non-Christians in that regard. Okay, in, in Acts 17, 28. That we just live in God, in God's, you know, uh, we live and move and have our being in God. He's that immense. Okay, and so for Christians though, we live our lives of faith. We have faith in Christ, in the sphere of Christ. To give one illustration, my brother um, Eric um, and Marcelino back there in... Uh, Doing the walk of shame right now. Uh, <laughs> trying to take your kid as an excuse. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, um, so w- during one of our, one of our dear friends' um, bachelor parties, they, they, um, they got together and they got into these, these big bubbles. You know, these, these huge bubbles and then you have handles inside and then you just keep bumping each other and you knock each other over to see, like, who's the last man standing, right? And so, um, so, um, so the, whole, the whole game, you are existing within, quite literally, the sphere of the bubble. And everything you do is in that sphere. Justin was there as well. He was in one of those bubbles and got knocked over pretty quickly. Or not quickly, but but the last two were Marcelino and Yek. And if you, you, you could find that video later, but Marcelino and Yek, two, two pretty big brothers here in our church. And they just went head on and collided and uh, one got laid out flat, but I won't tell you who it was. You can, you can watch the video later. The point here is that the whole game, they are existing within the sphere of that bubble. And for Christians, all of your life of faith is is within the sphere of Jesus Christ. Everything you do, your repentance, your faith, you're listening to the sermon right now. As you sit there, you are existing in the sphere of Jesus Christ. And when Paul thinks about saints existing in the sphere of Christ, living by faith in the sphere of Christ, he gives thanks. He's so grateful for them, even though he's never met them. So Paul thanks the Father for that. And so when you look at fellow members, when you look at the 131 other members of this church, and when you look at the guests here who are from other local churches and other Christians, and you see them, I want you to be thankful that they live by faith in the sphere of Jesus Christ, that they live within that sphere by faith.
So our faith in Christ is one, one of the reasons of what, the, what gospel people are doing. They're trusting in Christ and living in that sphere. The second thing is also in verse 4. You see it there? Not only have we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, but we've also heard of the love you have for all the saints. So it's also their love, our love for all the saints. Now, what is love? Love can be ill-defined. I'll give you a short, quick definition here, my definition of love. I, I would define love as the desires, the desiring and doing of good for the one you love. I mean, I, I could push it even one more. The desiring, well, the, discern, the desiring, discerning, and doing of good for those you love, for the beloved. Okay, so when you love someone, you desire their good, you discern what is good for them, and then you do something in line for their good. That's what love is. Christian or non-Christian, that's love. Wanting good for others and doing good for others and discerning good for others. Now, now for Christians, who is our ultimate good? Christ, right? God is good. The glory of God, the apex of God's glory, if we could call it an apex of God's glory, if, he, if we could say there's an apex, it would be the goodness of God. Moses said to God, show me your glory. And God said, I'll show you my goodness. That's weird. Because the goodness of God is, in some sense, the apex of the glory of God. And so we know that God, in all his glory in Christ, is good for us. So if I'm going to love the saints, I'm going to desire their good in Christ. I'm going to discern their good in Christ. And I'm going to do things in my life for their good in Christ. Because that's their greatest pleasure and treasure and joy. And so when Paul hears about their love for all the saints, he knows that it's a Christ-centered, Christ-ending um, Christ love. Not just Christ as the center, but Christ is the goal of that love. And they love the saints. They love all fellow Christians who are his end time holy nation in the new Israelic covenant. And notice here though in verse 4, he hears of their love they have for whom? The love you have for? Say it again. All the saints. Not some of the saints. Not your favorite saints. He's not thankful that, oh, I thank God that you love your favorite members of the church. Oh, I thank God that you love all those who are Baptists, but not all the non-Baptists. Or I thank God you love all the nine Marks-ish Christians and churches. Or all those who are concerned for the unborn. Or all those who are concerned for the ethnocentrically oppressed. Or all those who are Calvinistic. Or all those who are Shepherd LA connected. Or all those who are expository preaching. Or all those churches and Christians who are multi-ethnic. Or all those who are urban or suburban. Or all the English-speaking saints. Or the ones who know or, or like the things that I know or the things I like. Those who have the same hobbies as me. Or those of the same ethnicity or peer group or music preference or sports fan team dumb. Those are the saints I love. That's not Christian love. That's sports love or your own tribalistic love. That's not what Paul thanks God for here. He thanks God that these saints love all of the saints, all of those who are truly in Christ Jesus. They love all the saints in Christ Jesus who believe in the true gospel because when you believe in the true gospel, you're adopted by the Father and now you are truly brothers and sisters. So anyone who believes in the gospel has repented from their sins and trusted in Christ, the true Christ, the biblical Christ, the only Christ who saves. They are under one father. We are on one team. We, and we love that team. And we want that team to flourish and grow and bless their neighbors and expand. So we love all true Christians everywhere. Why, why do we love all true Christians everywhere? Because we love Jesus. And Jesus said, um, if you love me, keep my commandments in John 14, 15. In John 13, he says, um, I, a new commandment I give to you, love one another as what? As I have loved you, so you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, that you love me, that you follow me. By your love for your favorite Christians. No, by your love for one another, all of them, all the saints. In Matthew 18, Jesus tells us to welcome the least of the saints and not stumble them. In Matthew 25, verses 31 and following, he says that when you feed the least of these saints, when you clothe them, when you visit them in prison, when you have compassion on them, when you visit them in their sickness, you are visiting who? Christ. So why do you love all the saints? Because you love Jesus. And when you see them, who do you see, in a sense? Jesus. And when you treat them a certain way, who are you treating in that way? Jesus. And because you love Jesus, you don't pick and choose the saints you love. 
You love all of them if they're truly Christian because they're in Christ. And that's the New Testament pattern. So Paul thanks God for this church because they love all the saints. Not only do they love all the saints, um, one of the New Testament patterns of churches loving other churches is that these churches meet the needs and hear about the needs of other churches and care for them. But we won't dive into that this morning. That's not here in this text. That's just a New Testament pattern of, of church love for other churches. Where does this love come from? Where does this love come from that, that makes you love all the saints, even the ones that get on your nerves? Even the ones that sin against you? Even the ones where you disagree with them on certain important theological things, really important theological things, but not the gospel? Where does this true, heartfelt love for them come from? Very specifically, this love comes from verse 5. Well, verse 5 tells us where it comes from. Why do you have love for all the saints? Because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. That's why. Why do you love all the saints? Because you have a hope reserved for you in heaven. You are hoping in that hope. You have a future hope. And love for other saints springs from the hope of heaven. Now, the hope of Christ's presence, what is the hope? The hope is the hope of Christ's presence and his return in the new creation. You can see that in Colossians 1.27 and chapter 3, verse 4. I won't get into that now again for the sake of time. But let me just help you with this. When we say, I hope to see you tomorrow, so I have lunch with one of the members tomorrow. I have another member I'm hoping to talk to, I even used the word there, hoping to talk to tonight after the evening gathering who said, hey, PJ, can we talk tomorrow night? Great, happy to talk. I'm hoping to talk to them. When I say hoping, I don't mean it's for sure, right? Because I might not make it. I might not pass the COVID, uh, the COVID screening for tonight or there might be a traffic jam and the person we might not meet. So we say, when we say we hope to do something, we say hope and then we use this other thing called, this other phrase, um, which is what? Lord willing. We say, I hope to see you Lord willing because we're not sure if it's actually going to happen, even though we intend for it to happen, right? That's how we use the word hope. When God uses the word hope, he can always know that it's going to happen because that Lord willing, the willing of the Lord is that hope. So for us, we're like, well, Lord willing, because I don't know the Lord's sovereign will. But when God says he makes a promise that Christ is going to return and you're going to have resurrected bodies and you're going to reign with him on a new earth forever with this glorious inheritance, with joy that is abundant and eternal and ever-increasing, when God promises that to you, that hope is not a, well, it is a Lord willing, but it's for sure Lord willing because the Lord told you he wills it to happen, right? So when we see hope in the New Testament, it's not our hoping Lord willing with the asterisk, maybe, maybe not. It's always 100% for sure it's going to happen. And when these saints know that there is a hope reserved for them in heaven, there are treasures for them in heaven. There's an inheritance in heaven or on the new earth to come when Christ returns. They can love and sacrifice now because they don't need it now. I think, it was, uh, I think it was John Lee or maybe Marshall told me about uh, John Piper. One of the things he says, like when he sees something he wants, you know, like see a nice house on the hills that he really wants. And he'll look at it and he'll say, not yet. <laughs> not yet. Not on, not on this earth. But, but, but eventually, you know, that's hope, right? That, that's a certainty of hope that something's going to happen in the future. I could live uh, more modestly now. I can use my money and invest in eternity more now. I can give away more of myself and my time and my resources now. I can be more inconvenienced now. I can be sinned against by the saints that I love now. Because later, that hope is reserved for me. And it's coming. There's no doubt it's coming. I can sacrifice now. I, I can squeeze now. I can, I can die now to myself and I can die for this member, this fellow saint, because I have a hope reserved for me, not at the end of retirement here on earth, but in heaven reserved when Christ returns. And this reservation, this hope is reserved, reservations shift the life situation uh, while, while we wait for the reservation's fulfillment, right? When you truly have a reservation and it's reserved for you, you, you shift for it. So if we, I was asking the kids last night, hey, what do you guys think of when you think of reservations? They're like, oh, Korean barbecue. You know, when we go to the, when we go to the Korean barbecue restaurant, like, okay, yeah, so I, let's go with that analogy. So if you, if you think about, if you have all-you-can-eat Korean barbecue and you know it's reserved for later tonight, you have your table reserved, what are my kids gonna do? Certainly rock and I, what are we gonna do? We're gonna not eat. We're going to starve ourselves. Why? Because of the, the, the hope reserved for us. 
at, at dinner, that we will be able to eat and eat as much as we can, can, can eat before we faint, right? We're just going to eat as much as we can. But notice the, the, the future reservation uh, changes and shifts the present actions because we're looking forward to it. And you see that, I saw that yesterday at Bryant's wedding, the, the hope of marriage and, and, and when uh, the hope of marriage, so the ultimate hope for us is the wedding, the wedding supper of the Lamb, right? Revelation 19. There is a wedding, and there is a feast, and there is a party, and there's a celebration. That is our future. And so that, wed that future wedding is our hope, quite frankly, in the, in the Bible. And so when, when you are engaged, we have some of our members who are engaged to be married. Uh, when, when you have a, the hope of a marriage and wedding feast with your fiancé, and that's reserved because of the engagement... Uh, what, what, do you, what do you presently do in light of that future reservation? You don't date other people. You guard your affections for that person. You prepare your residence and your finances for the situation. You prepare for a wedding. You don't make other plans with friends or work on that wedding day. You actually reserve that day to make sure your schedule is clear so you can attend the wedding. Right? You make arrangements with the pastors and church family and other guests to, for, for the wedding. And you make preparations. You do premarital counseling for the, for the wedding. You're preparing for the future hope. And so that's what they did. Because there is a wedding feast to come, and it's for sure. They prepared, and they were free to love other people. And how do they know that this hope is true? Look at verse 5. You have already heard about this hope in what? Where they hear about this hope? In the what? In the word of the truth, which is the what? The gospel that has come to you. You know that Christ died and rose. And if he died for sinners and rose from the dead, there is a future resurrection. You heard about it. You know it. It's inevitable because he already rose from the dead. There's a past event that secured the future resurrection, the future wedding feast. And so because you know it, you are now free to love others, okay? So Paul thanks God whenever he regularly prays for the saints in Colossae because they love saints springing from the hope that they knew they had in heaven. So we should at the same time thank God for the saints we know and think about the love that they have for all the saints because of the future hope. So let me give some application here before we go to our second point. Number, uh, so church application. Church family, very practical application. So I'm speaking of the BBC saints. Get an updated church directory. Okay? Keep it in your Bible, use it every day, and pray for the saints. And here's the application for this week. Take your membership directory this week and thank God for every single member of BBC this coming week. Thank God for their faith in Christ and thank God for their love for all of the saints because of the hope reserved for them. Do what Paul did. And he says he always thanks God. That doesn't mean he prays and he never eats and he doesn't sleep. And that, that's not what he means. He means that he always has a dispositional prayer and he prays regularly. He, Paul prays regularly. In Jewish practice, at least Peter at two times, would pray at 3 o'clock p.m. Daniel and Daniel 6 would pray three times a day. There's a regular prayer that he would do quite regularly and, and he would always thank God. So do that if you're a member of this church. And if you're not a Christian, I have a question for you. When you feel thankful for things like a beautiful sunset, or health, or a close call, or a big break that broke in your direction, and you feel this overwhelming sense of gratitude, if you're not a Christian, I wonder who you thank. Who do you thank when you feel grateful? What do you thank? I want to remind you, even you children, I want to remind you that God, your creator, invites you to thank him. Which is why it's better not to say, or sometimes I'll correct my kids a little bit when, I, when we say, hey, what are you thankful for today? And they'd say, oh, I'm thankful for, and I say, you thank God for, I just want to make sure that it's not thankfulness in general as an attitude, but thank, thankfulness to the Father in heaven for what they've done. Okay, so be encouraged and grateful, one, for what the gospel is doing in people's lives, faith in Christ, love for the saints. Secondly, second major point, okay, be encouraged and grateful for, for what the gospel itself is doing. And what is the gospel doing? Look at verse 6. It is bearing fruit and growing all over the world, just as it has among you. So what is the gospel doing? It is bearing fruit and growing. So be encouraged and grateful, not only for what, what, um, what the saints are doing, but be encouraged and grateful for what the gospel is doing. It's growing and bearing fruit all over the world. So let's think about global fruit and local fruit. 
okay? So we'll, we'll, the way we'll break down uh, verses 6 through 8 is global fruit and local fruit. Think about global fruit. The gospel, it says in verse 6, is bearing fruit and growing all over the world. What does it mean that it's bearing fruit all over the world and that the gospel is growing? Can the gospel grow? It says here that the gospel is growing. What does it mean that the gospel is growing? I mean, it's a message. How does the message grow? It means that the message is what? It's spreading. More people are believing this message. More people are hearing about this message, right? And so the message is spreading, and, and, and it's growing because more people are believing in Christ. So there's conversions happening. There's life transformation of those who have converted from their sins and trusted in Jesus Christ. And then these people who are transformed and converted, they take the gospel and they share it with other people, right? And so it's the fruit of conversions. It's the fruit of life change. It's the fruit of the gospel spreading and churches being established and planted all over the world. In Colossians 1.10, it's the fruit of good works. When we think of good fruit or abundant fruit, I think of um, my lemon tree, which we trimmed, and I was horrified uh, by the trimming of the, the lemon tree because I told them specifically what I wanted as if I know how to trim a lemon tree, right? Um, so I told them what I wanted, and then they just said, yes, 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 and then they just cut everything. And I looked at it, and it was, it was so terrible. I, I apologized to Francis. I'm like, I'm so sorry. And I was so discouraged that they just cut everything. And he's like, it's going to grow back. I was like, that's not what I said to do, you know. Um, but, I mean, they were right. They knew what they were doing. Like, the tree is back, and it's abundant with fruit, and it's growing everywhere, and, and it, it's overflowing. And so, um, and that's what the gospel does. It, it, just, it just grows. It looks like it's dead. It looks like, there, it looks like nothing is happening, and that you cut too far, and there's nothing going on, and then... It just grows because that's what the gospel does. It's growing and bearing fruit all over the world. I asked my kids for another analogy. Analogy helps, so they're getting a lot of credit here this morning for the sermon. One of the kids said, um, they pointed, they're like, well, what do you guys think of when you think about fruit? They're like, well, us. I'm like, what do you mean? They're like, well, we are the fruit of mommy's womb. So that's true. That is true. You are the fruit of mommy's womb. And... Um, there's actually something really deeply powerful and true about that insight because that, that insight actually connects to the very beginning of the world. Adam and Eve, the two become one flesh. And what was their command? What was the very first command to them? Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Genesis 1.28. Be fruitful Multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Adam and Eve were given a commission. They were given a command. And their command, their, their commission, their duty was to get married or to be married, to be intimate, to have babies, so to be fruitful, have children, multiply so those children have children, teach them about God's commands in the Garden of Eden, keep the garden orderly, and even as Greg Beale says, even keep extending the order of the garden out to the rest of the globe so that not only are they going out, but they're subduing the earth. They're subduing and they're spreading this order, this godly image of God order over the whole world, this order of harmony and peace where humanity is above the rest of creation, righteously ruling and exercising authority over the animals in the rest of creation, and all of that imaging the glory and goodness and beneficence of God. That was the plan. And Adam and Eve are not enough to do it. You need more people. So be fruitful, multiply, disciple them, teach them, and then subdue the earth in my image for my glory. That was God's plan. And did Adam and Eve succeed? Did they defeat the enemy and the evil one who sought to oppose this plan? No, they failed. They gave in to the enemy. And they listened to the enemy and failed to disciple people to spread God's glory over the whole earth. And then God raised up Israel. His firstborn son, he says in Exodus 4. And Israel was tested in the wilderness and in the land, just like Adam was tested in the garden. Israel was tested in the wilderness and they were tested in the promised land. And did they pass the test and defeat the evil one to spread the goodness of God and the glory of God around the whole earth? No, not under the old covenant in Israel at least. And then a new Israel came about. His name is Jesus, embodying Israel. He goes into the wilderness to be tested by the enemy. He's tested in the land. And he defeats the evil one. It says actually later in the same book of Colossians, if you go to Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, he disarms the enemies by his death on the cross. He cancels the accusations they have. His perfect life, his death on the cross, he doesn't give in to temptation, and he defeats the enemy. So he secures the, the glory of God, the image of God in his victory. 
And then he starts uniting people to himself. And the more they unite him, the more they're changed into his image and transformed and redeemed. And then they start to go out and they start to carry out the victory he secured. He defeats Satan at the cross. He secures the victory. He unites people to himself. He sends them out and they start to now become fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it with the preaching and discipling of the gospel. That's what they do. And when Paul sees this, he gives thanks. The gospel is growing and spreading, and Christians are growing, and churches are being planted, and the gospel is spreading, and people are growing all over the world, bringing about new creations, because if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creation, and there are more new creations as the new creation seeks to overtake the old creation, especially when Christ returns to bring it to its consummation. Paul thanks God for global gospel growth. The universal church is growing. The new Israelic covenant temple dwelt by the Holy Spirit is growing. And the reflection of God in redeemed image bearers is growing and filling the earth. Paul sees it in Colossae and he thanks God. When you see fellow Christians growing, do you see gospel growth? When you see another member repenting from their sin, do you see the gospel growing in them? If it is, you should thank God because it's going to spill out. It's going to spell to others. It's going to spell to Christians and non-Christians. Do you see churches being planted? Do you see people coming to Christ? Do you know of other churches that are growing where they're doing good gospel work? Thank God that the Adamic commission that Christ uh, secured is being carried out and the gospel is growing. So we should thank God for all the nation states having the gospel today. We should thank God for Shepherd LA pastors and churches that are doing their thing, SBC churches, Knight and Marks Minded churches, Creek Collective churches, TGC Connected churches, Gospel Coalition Connected churches, and really just very broadly, Protestant churches that are believing the gospel. Anyone that believes that God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that Christ Jesus is Lord, God, and man who died on the cross for sinners and rose from the dead, and all who repent from their sins and trust in Him are saved, anyone who's preaching that, Praise God that they are doing that, no matter how unhealthy their churches are. That it's spreading. This gospel is spreading. Thank God for the missionary laborers. There are 17,433 people groups in the world, according to joshuaproject.net, approximately. There are 7,398 unreached people groups. And yet, Christians are praying for these unreached people groups. Christians are being sent to these unreached people groups. Christians are among these unreached people groups sharing the gospel, and the gospel is growing. And I want us to back up and just think about this gospel growth. Just back up and think about why is the gospel growing? At the core, the reason the gospel is growing everywhere is because God desires it to grow. God is passionate for his glory. And he's passionate for his glory among you and those you know and love. God is so passionate that he, God is so passionate that he sent his son and, and did this whole redemption project for this purpose. And notice this. God is not just passionate for his glory. He is. But he is passionate for your joy and your happiness and your fulfillment and your thankfulness in that glory. In other words, God is just as passionate for your good as he is for his glory. That means you have a God who's excited about you. You have a God who's enthusiastic about you. You have a God who's enthusiastic to see you grow and to see others grow and to see the gospel grow through you. Praise God that he is not indifferent to your growth and to the growth of the gospel. That's the global fruit. But what about the local fruit? Let's go on. Look at verse 7 here. It's not all, or verse 6, it's not bearing fruit only all, all over the world. Just as it has among you, you saints at Colossae, when did it grow in them, in them? Since when? Since the day they heard the gospel and came to truly appreciate God's grace. So they heard God's gospel through the preaching of the gospel, and faith comes by hearing the gospel. They believe the gospel. They appreciate the grace of the gospel because the gospel is grace, that God favors sinners who are cursed that God favors those who deserve his damnation because of Christ. So they appreciate this grace, the grace of God in the gospel. Not only is it local in the sense that they heard it and believed it, it's local in the sense that they heard it from someone that they could name. Look at verse 7. You learned this gospel from whom? Epaphras, our dearly loved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ 
on your behalf. They learned it from Epaphras. I told you already, Epaphras probably got saved in Ephesus when Paul was planting a church there, and then he went to this Lycus Valley and planted three churches there. Okay, he planted uh, most likely Colossae, Hierapolis, and Laodicea. Laodicea, you know that from the church of Laodicea in Revelation 3, verses 14 and 22. Those, those churches. So, so Epaphras, Epaphras preached the gospel and planted churches in these areas. And it says here that he is a, faith, he is a dearly loved fellow servant. He's a slave, and slaves have no rights. The word servant there is slave. And here, this slave, at least Epaphras, he is fully devoted to the cause of Christ. Not only is he fully devoted to the cause of Christ, he's a faithful minister of Christ. Now, it should be on our behalf. There's a footnote there in your, your CSB. It says on your behalf in the CSB. It should be on our behalf. I can tell you why later. The point here is that um, it's not that big of a deal, but Epaphras is a faithful minister, faithful servant of the gospel to Colossae on behalf of Paul and Timothy, on behalf of the apostolic band. So he's a, he's a servant of the apostles in spreading the gospel. So um, we should be praising God for those who've taught us the Bible, those who taught us the gospel, those who, pre, who, um, who have given you an appreciation of the gospel. So for me personally, as I was writing this sermon, I was thanking God for Pastor Ed Ormeo and his daughter Elaine Ormeo who shared the gospel with me through Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 in January 1989. And I was thankful for the Saints of Christian Fellowship Bible Church from 1989 to 2007. Some of you are here. Thankful for those saints who taught me the gospel and taught me how to follow Jesus. And I'm thankful for my parents who are also members of that church who taught me the gospel and taught me how to appreciate the grace of the gospel. The gospel is not only growing globally, it's growing locally. And if it's growing locally, there are people you can name who have invested in you to help you grow in the gospel. Thank God for them. And thank God that they're working in the people that you're thanking God for. And then one more thing on this lo local locality of the gospel growth. It's um, not only from them hearing it from Epaphras, but look at verse 8, lastly. And he has told us about your love in the spirit. So um, they have heard about, or the gospel has been growing in them such that they are growing in love. And this love is in the sphere of the person of the Holy Spirit. They, they, they are being empowered by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is bearing fruit in, in them, the fruit of the Spirit in them, love and knowledge of God, such that they are loving in the person of the Holy Spirit, in the, in the sphere of the Holy Spirit. So they love others in the presence and in the power and in the work of the Holy Spirit. Because they were baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ. They were sealed by the Spirit. They are indwelt by the Spirit, so they love in the presence and power of the Spirit. To know Christ as Lord is to know God as Father, and it is to be overwhelmed by the love of God in the Spirit, such that you are moved to love others in the power of the Spirit. You guys know 1 John 4, 8. Um, everyone who has been born of God loves. Why? Because God is love. You have the Trinitarian God living in you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. To be a Christian is to love in the Spirit. To be a Christian is to have communion and connection to the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So let me close by, uh, by asking this question of application, because I was convicted as I studied this passage. And what I was convicted by was, man, I'm, I love what I'm studying, but Father, I'm, as I'm praying, Father, I don't feel that deeply thankful. Like, I get the concepts, I got my sermon outline, okay, I know what I'm going to say, but Lord, I don't feel that, like, when I think about our saints at BBC, I'm thankful, but I'm not, like, deeply thankful, you know, like, where you're just excited, and there's, like, a deep heart resonance of gratitude, and I'm like, Lord, what's wrong with me, and what's wrong with us for, I'm going to preach it to people, when we're, when we're not feeling grateful, like, really grateful, what can we do? What's, what's going on here that's making us not grateful? So I, I want to answer this question uh, as, as a way of concluding the sermon. Why am I not deeply thankful in my heart to God for what the gospel is doing in the world and in our locality and what gospel people are doing, namely trusting in Christ and loving the saints? Why am I not deeply thankful? And I should be thankful because when I look at you, BBC, uh, you and I, we are unable to, to love God apart from him, right? We're unable to believe in him. We're doomed in our sin and we're bound by the lies. And so God gave us the word of truth, the gospel, because God is gracious and good to us. So I should be thankful, right? But I'm not. 
Why not? Here's my answer and my confession slash repentance that hopefully might help you if you're feeling ungrateful as well. I was thinking, okay, I feel ungrateful deep in my heart. I feel cold-hearted in large measure when I'm meditating on these glorious truths. Why? What am I believing? Deep down, I'm believing that I am entitled. I'm entitled to this grace, maybe. Or maybe I believe, because I am unable to believe, and you guys are unable to believe and trust in Christ and love the saints, but maybe I believe that we are able to believe. Maybe I believe that from my own goodness, from our own goodness, because I've been going at this Christian life since 1989, I no longer am dependent on God. I'm independent. I no longer need God the way I formerly did, because I get it now. I've been a Christian for a while. So maybe I, I feel a sense of independence. And why? Why do I feel independent from God? Maybe it's because I feel deep down I believe that God owes me. Or because he promised it, God against his will has to just continue it anyways. He has to hold me fast. He promised it, right? He promised that all those who would be justified would be glorified. So I'm going to be glorified. God has to do it. So maybe I'm just thinking, well, he owes it to me. He already promised it. And so part deep down in me, I think I'm starting to think that I'm impersonal, that somehow God is impersonally and not intentionally or enthusiastically um, enabling me and enabling each of you to trust God this very moment and to trust God the next moment and to love the saints, which, makes, which means deep down I believe that God is now no longer necessary for us or that he's not the primary cause of our love and faith. He's the secondary cause and we're primary. And brothers and sisters, quite honestly, that's blasphemous. For me to think that God is unnecessary, for me to believe deep down that God is secondary, and that somehow by virtue of past experience and virtue of his promises that, that God owes it to me. And it's, it's demonic. It's a demonic lie to think that God is not enthusiastic and intentionally, personally involved in every one of you this moment to sustain your faith in Christ and your love for the saints. And so I needed to ask God, Lord, forgive me and change me. Forgive me for believing you're not necessary. Forgive me for thinking that, that somehow you're not personally involved in my life and in every member of this church's life and in every Christian who's truly a Christian. As if you're not enthusiastic, enthusiastically and passionately behind that growth. As if we're entitled and no longer need you. Because what is the truth? We need to repent from the lies. Those are the lies I need to repent from. What's the truth? The truth is that God is good, right? God is gracious and God is happily gracious. God personally and intentionally and enthusiastically enables you and I and rescues us from, rescues us from sin. He empowers us to repent from sin and to believe in the gospel and to love the saints. And God, when I look at your faces, what I need to be seeing is that God is working in each of you right now with joy and gladness and a smile. And he's working in you and me right now, giving us love each moment in each church with each sermon. And he's weaving all of this together for that final consummation of the hope when Christ returns. That means that I need to believe not only that God is working, but that we, I, I'm not previously, um, though previously and currently unable to trust Christ, uh, I, I was previously unable to trust Christ before I was saved, but guess what? Even now, currently, I'm still unable to trust Jesus, right? On my own, I'm still unable to love the saints with true love. I need Jesus right now. And because the Lord is sustaining you and sustaining me with this love and this faith, that makes me thankful. I'm looking at your faces now and thinking, God is sustaining you right now. He's working in you. And I can thank God from the heart because it's not just thankfulness for what a passage says, but because it's active and present right now in my very, right before my eyes. God is doing this. So brothers and sisters, let's thank God. Let's pray for each other regularly. And this week, let's thank God that he has made us family. Let's thank God that we have faith in Christ. Let's thank God that we and other Christians have love for all the saints because of the hope reserved for us. Let's thank God that the gospel is growing here in Southern California and in Los Angeles and here at, in Belthar and here in BBC, and it's growing all over the world. Let's thank God that he is active and enthusiastic in every single inch of gospel growth. Let's praise God for saving and calling us 
And let's be overwhelmingly, let's pray that God would make us overwhelmingly grateful. Let's grow in gratitude for God's growing grace. Let's grow in gratitude for God's active grace. Let's grow in gratitude for God's present grace. Let's grow in, grat grow in gratitude for God's current grace. Glory be to God the Father. Glory be to God the Son. And glory be to God the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our faith in the Lord Jesus and our love for the saints because that comes from your enthusiasm and your desire and your initiative and your love. Make us a thankful people, an overwhelmingly thankful people. And may we this week thank you for all the saints, even all the members of BBC. And may we even communicate that to each other in love and in emails or text messages or phone calls or hanging out. May we communicate our gratitude for each other. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, brothers and sisters, let's take